This is Mornings with Simi. I'm sorry? You're under arrest. Okay. Do you mind whoa, whoa, telling whoa, whoa, me whoa. why I'm under arrest, sir? Why, why am I under arrest, sir? That right there is the sound that was live on TV of CNN reporter Oscar Jimenez being arrested live on air while reporting on the streets in protests of Minneapolis. Now that, of course, as the backlash continues three days in a row now over the death of George Floyd, a black man who died after a confrontation with police. This is that video that you have undoubtedly seen somewhere with the police officer kneeling on his neck and George Floyd telling police, I can't breathe. To talk more about what is happening there, CBS correspondent Paul Violas joins us now to talk about the chaos that is happening in Minneapolis. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Sammy. It doesn't sound like at this point anything is under control in Minneapolis. What is the state of affairs there? I think you hit the nail right on the head. There is absolutely no control here. And and, and the unfortunate part, Sammy, the unfortunate part is that um, the mayor made a very sound decision to place the entire community's safety in jeopardy by allowing riots in lieu of peaceful protests. And unfortunately, as we see over and over and over again in the United States, when this happens, the next level up is bringing in the National Guard. And then you have tanks rolling down Main Street. And unfortunately, Simi, at that point, mm. you know what? We can only say it's going to get worse before it gets better. So what happened there? The, the protest started out as peaceful. What changed that? Well, I don't know that it started out as peaceful, Simi. I mean, based on the footage that I saw, the CCTV footage that I saw from, from various camera angles, city camera angles, I mean, people showed up in masses with with the intent of destroying public property. Uh, and then it just it just went from there. And you know, there, there's two modes of thought here. First of all, the incident that took place with respect to the four officers and what they did to this poor man is not only inexcusable, but it's criminal. And they will, in fact, be prosecuted. There's no question in my mind about that. However, a police Police, whether it be in the United States or Canada, it doesn't make a difference. The responsibility of police is to protect the totality of the community. So if in protest you feel entitled to burn down stores, destroy property, turn vehicles upside down, set things on fire, you are breaking the law. And quite frankly, if the mayor or the city officials in these various cities do their job, those people are going to go to jail. You are not entitled to do that. So does it sound at this point increasingly likely that the National Guard's going to be called in? Oh, there's no, Simi, that's, that's a certainty. There's no question about it. Now, the other part about this, too, is we come out of, and I say that tongue-in-cheek, is we come out of the, the COVID-19 crisis. You're taking National Guard troops that are positioned strategically around the country to help administer testing and to promote much more of a safe, helpful environment. You're removing them from that. And which is going to slow that process down to handle, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people that are clearly not social distancing um, all over each other yeah. in a violent manner. So this is this is perfect, the perfect storm type of stuff. Simi. So we saw the CNN reporter Omar Jimenez being arrested live on air this morning. Have there been any other concerns right. for media down there? What's that been like? No, no, I, I don't believe there has been whatsoever. And, and bearing in mind, too, I, I have the unique position of having spent 40 years in government service uh, and, and now, you know, in the media as, as CBS's law enforcement and security analyst, so I can see it both sides. 
when you have an incident, and Simi, you know this to be true, wh- whatever city it may be, when you have an incident, police will provide media a staging area. And it's for a reason. It's for your safety and the safety of the police and the safety of the general public. If you start feeling you can go film and do what you want outside of that staging area, you are putting yourself right now out of the media into a private citizen and you're breaking the law. So, you know, that's a, that's a stern message that goes out, not just in this case, Simi, but in all cases relative to a crisis like this. Right, but it also, it's it's a a bad look for the police here as well. When you're talking about somebody who was live on TV, being very peaceful, easily identifiable, and they chose to do this, this is not the kind of bad publicity the police need right now. Let me tell you something. There there is no such thing right now, Timmy, as good optics for police across the country. There's there's no question about that. And, And yes, I completely agree with what you're saying. But at the end of the day, in a situation like this, yeah, and this is, a, this is a message to all media, stay in the staging area because tensions are high and you don't need to push the envelope at this point. Right. And so speaking of tensions are high, you had the president weighing in as well a couple of times here. Uh, how yeah. is, is the governor willing to have the president involved? How is that going to go over? <sighs> Only God knows. I mean, honestly, I really don't know. And I sit back, and, and obviously I, I never take a political position on anything. I'm a, I'm a fact guy. Um, but I find it very difficult to support when, when our president's out there blowing up on Twitter and, and making statements that at one point you're trying to de-escalate conflict, and at the second point you're, you're saying something that's inflaming conflict. So I don't know how that goes over. There's, remember, the National Guard reports to the governor. The governor is the CEO of the state. So if the governor enlists the National Guard and deploys them, and then you've got the president banging heads with the governor, at the end of the day, Simi, it's the people that live in these communities that are at enhanced risk, as well as, as well as, and I want to point this out, all of the good cops, which the vast mm-hmm. majority are great, all of the good cops now that, whose lives are in danger because of what these four morons did and how poorly Minneapolis is handling this. So... Uh, I wish I could tell you there were some good optics coming down the road, but right now the only thing that we could do is expeditiously bring to indictment the four cops. We'll see what happens. Paul, thank you for your time on this. Yes, ma'am. Always a pleasure. Have a great day. You too. That is Paul Violas, who's a CBS reporter and military correspondent, as you heard him say there, talking about the situation in Minneapolis. No signs of the riot right now and the troubles abating. Uh, in fact, this morning ramped up a little bit more as we were talking about there with the CNN reporter Omar Jimenez being arrested live on air while reporting on the protests and riots that are happening there. So we're going to be keeping an eye on that. We'll keep you posted on how things are going. This is Mornings with Simi. Have you ever wondered why there's just some people, and you know one of these people, who just never seem to gain weight, no matter what they eat or how little they exercise? It is so frustrating for the rest of us, isn't it? Uh, We all know one of them. I know I do. And if you are one of them, well, then lucky you. And it turns out there is actually just a skinny gene that can answer these questions for us. Some people are born with it. And many of us, of course, born without it. Our Nikki Rottmeyer was curious about this. She had a chance to speak to Dr. Joseph Penninger, who worked on a study that looked into this issue. He's the director of the Life Sciences Institute at UBC and a professor of medical genetics. And here's what he told her. We all know one of these people, don't we? 
Uh, yes, we do. And we're always very jealous about them. And that's why we wanted to study it, to find the genetics of people who can eat whatever they want and don't gain any weight. Is that really what inspired it? You thought, ah, I know these people are out there. There's got to be something else going on here. How is it that they can eat whatever they want and they never seem to gain a pound? Yeah, absolutely. And, and we also wanted to turn the whole field of, of weight control and obesity and, you know, and, and all of us being obsessed with diets and controlling our weight really upside down, really look at it from the other side. What actually happens to people who want to gain weight but cannot gain weight and what's the genetics behind it? So can you explain to me then just generally, how did the study work? Uh, we started with uh, looking into humans. <clears throat> uh, we used uh, this biobank in Estonia. Uh, there are various reasons, but basically the entire country of Estonia signed up, so we have amazing data. And we found this 1% of population who, who just remain skinny and can, ever, can eat whatever they want and don't gain any weight. And based on this, we actually found a gene mutation in a gene which is called ALK, uh, and then we made flies, which where the ALK gene was downregulated and the flies stayed skinny, which is really interesting in evolutionary terms. So the system, uh, this genetic circle to, to make us skinny and thin is, must be hundreds of millions of years old. And then finally, we actually engineered, genetically engineered a mouse train that you know, where we use genetic scissors and cut out the ALK gene, <clears throat> made mice which don't have the ALK gene, and these mice remain skinny. We even gave them high-fat diets or burger diets, uh, uh, you know, like eating five, six burgers a day, and they still remain skinny. This ALK gene, what else about it is significant? Because it also has a, a relationship with cancer as well, correct? Yes, so, so there were thousands of papers published on ALK uh, in cancer. So the reason is it's an oncogene. It's basically a gene which drives cancer. But the real function in the normal body, nobody had ever explored. And so it turns out the real function outside of cancer is actually it acts in our brain and communicates a signal from our brain to the fat in our body and tells the fat to burn many more calories. Oh, so if we look at this from an evolutionary standpoint, what would be the benefit of lacking this elk gene, of being skinny? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. Because, you know, we all think about evolution in terms of, uh, you know, food uh, scarcity. And that's where people get uh, obese. You know, as soon as we have supermarkets and we can eat whatever we want, we eat. And that's what basically happened to the planet. And of course, you know, there are more than a billion people or even more than this uh, obese and and overweight. So really the evolutionary advantage of staying skinny, I, I honestly don't really know. There, there must be something because the circuit is ancient. Uh, we can find it in, in insects already. Yeah. Uh, I have another question for you. You said earlier that you were able to get rid of this ALK gene in mice and in insects, and that ultimately they had a lower body weight. How can I get rid of my ALK gene? How do I delete my ALK gene? <laughs> yeah, in, in, there are some natural mutants. So that's what we basically found in humans. It is a really skinny. So 50% of them have this mutation, carry this mutation. Uh, of course, most of us don't. Uh, so really the question is how could we switch this off? I think with genetic engineering, this might be a bad idea because if we switch it off, it's always switched off. But of course, we could attempt to, you know, in parentheses, to develop a pill which switches off ALK. And by doing so, uh, maybe 
look at weight gain in a way that one doesn't gain any weight. Not about you know losing weight, but not gaining any weight. That's interesting. So where do you see your research going from here? Do you think it will develop more uh, down that path? Uh, what I would really like to do okay, now after we publish this paper, we, we, I'm getting all these emails of people from all over the planet who actually tell me their life history of, you know, being one meter 80 and having 50 kilos and they can eat whatever they want. They don't gain any weight, so they would love to gain weight. So what I would love to do if I get the funding for it to make a global record of sinners, basically of the global sinners project, uh, you know, collect the genetic information on these people and really figure out what's the genetics of remaining sin. Because well, I think we can learn a lot about obesity and gaining weight from looking at it from the totally different side. That's kind of interesting, eh? Learn about obesity by looking at those who are thin. Exactly. You know, I mean, we all study obesity, uh, we all, many of us in research study obesity. Uh, and, and, you know, most of us always do the same thing, follow the same ideas. Uh, sometimes it's healthy to look at the problem from the opposite side, uh, you know, turn around the mirror uh, and maybe learn something. Maybe we don't learn something, but I'm pretty sure we do learn something. This is Mornings with Simi. One of the side effects of this COVID-19 pandemic situation has been this ongoing discussion about, well, are these changes, are some of them going to be permanent? Have we drastically changed how we go about our business every day? Are more people going to work from home? Uh, are we going to see fewer cars or more cars? Are we going to travel the same way? Well, the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade has commissioned some polling on this ahead of a virtual forum series that they are hosting on the subject next week. And to talk more about that, the president of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade, Bridget Anderson, joins us now. Good morning, Bridget. Good morning, Simi. So tell me about this poll. What, did, what were you looking for? What did you ask? Well, it's really interesting. It's very clear that COVID-19 has had profound impacts on many aspects of life, including the way that we move around our region. And so we asked uh, our members uh, whether they thought that they were going to change their habits in the future. And we're seeing some positive things. So residents are, seeing, are saying they're going to walk and bike more because of COVID-19. But over a third of them are planning on increasing car travel and ownership. So this is going to be a key challenge for transit. And part of this uh, is probably about confidence. You know, anecdotally, people are saying they're not sure if it's safe to ride the bus or SkyTrain. And certainly this is a, a challenge that is being met by increased health and safety measures. But it's also just changing the way that we are getting to and from work. If you're only walking down the hall to your kitchen or to your office, you're not commuting into work as much. So some really big changes that we're seeing. Right. That'd have a huge impact. If even 10% more people, you know, got a car and decided to start driving, we already have a problem with gridlock on our roads. We do. And it's not just about moving people. It's about moving people and goods. And so if people are going to be in their cars more, we will see increased congestion, which also leads to a loss in productivity. It really, it also uh, leads to impacts on the environment. So these are some very significant impacts that we are seeing. Okay, and what else did you talk to them? I know you talked about kind of new transportation infrastructure. 
Well, we did ask about uh, transportation infrastructure and, you know, it's really important and the, the results are telling us that it's important that there needs to be uh, uh, investments in infrastructure, not only to better connect our region, but also to create jobs and to to better allow for the movement of people and goods. And if we think even prior to COVID-19, when we saw some serious disruptions in our supply chain around the blockades, that also had impacts on our economy. So this goes back to prior COVID-19 when we saw some of these impacts. So it is important that we continue to invest in infrastructure. It will ensure that um, we are better connecting people and goods, but it also impacts our ability to trade internationally. So there, there's a lot of connectivity here that's really important. And over the next uh, few days, uh, next week, when we go into the forum, we're going to be looking at the future of mobility and how tech uh, is having an impact. We're also going to look at how we move goods through the region and that connection to global trade and then the movement of people. And I think this piece is also important to tech when we think about how people are going to be returning to work. Yeah, let's talk about that for a moment. What have you heard from businesses and business managers and owners about having employees back in the workplace? Do they want that or are they happy with the situation with them working from home? It is a really, really broad spectrum, and I believe that we're seeing over the summer what will be a very um, significant transition period. Many offices are going to have staff work um, in staggered schedules or maybe one or two days a week, and part of that is because uh, we're trying to ensure that you're following the social distancing measures and other measures like that. But also part of it is to reflect how people are feeling. They have become very used to working at home, very productive. They maybe don't want to commute, uh, spend extra time doing that. Uh, So it is going to be a time of uh, transition over the summer. As we get into the fall, uh, I think we might see a return to more normal um, levels of people working in the office. But that remains to be seen, whether we're going to see a second wave of the pandemic and how that might have an impact. But that future of work piece is going to be really interesting to watch how this develops over the coming months. So does that mean that there is any kind of concern for kind of vacancy rates for commercial buildings in downtown Vancouver? There's no question that, uh, at least in the near term, there's going to be some impacts there. And I don't have the, the specific figures on that. But anecdotally, hearing that, you know, a lot of uh, big offices are taking a look at their space and wondering if they need the same amount of space or how they might reconfigure to ensure that they're keeping their workers health healthy and safe and uh, applying to social distancing. And also recognizing that, well, we've been doing this now for, for many uh, companies, you know, 11 or 12 weeks. And if, if people can work at home, why do we need to bring them together in the way that we did before? So some very long-term impacts coming up that, We'll sit back in probably a year or two and think, wow, that really changed the face of how we work, how we move in our region, and many other factors as well. All right, Bridget, thank you. Thanks so much, Cindy. That's Bridget Anderson, President and CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade, also a member of the Premier's Economic Recovery Task Force. They've been polling their members and and people right across Metro Vancouver, and they found that 36% of the respondents plan to increase their use of their car or have car ownership because of COVID-19. And they said that was a similar result across the board of Metro Vancouver, including the city of Vancouver. So if, can you imagine if even 10% more people buy cars out there, don't take transit anymore? Uh, just think about what that's going to do to the roads, how busy they are going to become. Uh, their desire to increase active modes of transportation, uh, including biking and walking, that was much more pronounced uh, in the city of Vancouver. 43% in Vancouver said they would prefer to do that. The rest of the region said, 
said about 27% of them would like to increase active modes like biking and walking. How do you feel? Car? No car? Back to transit? Working from home? Going into work? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. The Housing Vancouver strategy has set a supply target of 72,000 new homes for the 10-year period between 2017 and 2028. Based on her analysis of census data, Councillor Hardwick has provided staff and council with a projection, approximately 30,000 units of demand for dwellings over this time frame. Okay, so that's Dr. John Rose from the Department of Geography and the Environment at Kwantlen Polytechnic University. He is one of a number of people who've been talking recently about reevaluating the Housing Vancouver strategy. Quite a few marathon meetings at Vancouver City Hall this week, and this was definitely one of the topics. To talk more about that now, Councillor Melissa D. Genova joins us uh, to discuss re-examining this housing strategy, what that could look like, cutting the sanitation budget, and more. Thank you very much for joining us. This morning. Good morning to me. Where are we at then with the housing strategy? Is it going to be reevaluated? Well, uh, the motion that was originally put forward by Councillor Hardwick was amended uh, by her, and she brought that forward in in relation to concerns she uh, mentioned she heard from a number of of council. Uh, members. And I, I think that it's important that we really do look at the data. I agree with Councillor Hardwick on that. I'm not quite sure that it will uh, show us that we need to lower our targets uh, in, in trying to build 72,000 housing units and, and more so affordable housing units. If anything, maybe this data will help to inform us about the right supply. And as as I said to my colleagues in debate on this motion, uh, which I, I've heard from not only uh, my colleagues but from members of the public, they were they were quite surprised that I supported. Uh, that let's let the numbers speak for themselves, and I'm confident that they will show that Vancouver needs more affordable housing and more types of affordable housing. I've always been a big proponent and have consistently pushed for that over uh, you know two terms of council. And I think that it, that's really important as, uh, as as someone who ran for, for city council uh, on this, this issue. It's deeply personal to me as the first millennial ever elected. And now I look uh, at my, my toddler, uh, my young daughter, and wanting her to be able to afford housing in the city of Vancouver. I think we really have to look at those numbers and some different options. Right. Everything from affordable home ownership to co-housing. Right. So all of that is still on the table then from what you're saying. All of that's still on the table. When we talk about recalibrating, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're doing that uh, downwards. And I think that it's really important, especially after last term, and some pretty hefty promises, some promises to end homelessness in our city. I think that that needs to be a target and a goal for everyone. Uh, But I don't think that it's fair to promise the most vulnerable of vulnerable populations in our city that we are going to be able to solve and end an issue that's systematically uh, so much more than uh, four walls and a roof over someone's head. Uh, and, and I think we're building that, that trust back with, uh, with the people of Vancouver. This council is trying to. It means some long hours. Uh, but that being said, I'm confident that the, the data will help to guide our staff and, and will just reassure us 
of what we're doing with right. the housing Vancouver strategy. Now, I know that's a very important topic, right? Housing is a very important topic in the city of Vancouver. But this week, that seems to have been overshadowed by some other events at Vancouver City Hall. For instance, this hiring of the social media staffer, cutting sanitation funding. Where do you stand on that? Well, I voted against that. <laughs> We've been having some real technical uh, difficulties, so I actually had to ask for reconsideration because uh, the votes were separated. Uh, so I, I wanted to make sure that it was noted that I was in opposition to that. I think that we have to not only look at the optics, we can talk about uh, it being a small amount in a large overall budget, but I think that it's important that we, we try and take a, a calm uh, and you know, thoughtful approach to this as the leadership of the city. And that's why I also put forward uh, in the past weeks a a 10% pay reduction um, for all council members. Um, And that's for for all councillors, I should say. Decrease, is that going to be, you know, a lot of money in the overall budget? No, it's a drop in the bucket. But I think considering the fact that, you know, we have 1,800 staff that have been laid off, uh, the fact that uh, there may be more layoffs and we're not quite sure where our budget sits right now, it's important that we, you know, we stand with our staff and, and we take exemptions in line with what, or sorry, we take uh, pay reductions in line with our other uh, exempt staff. And that's why I put that forward. So, uh, no, I don't think that that is uh, the best way that the money can be spent. And actually, it concerns me that there were a number of things in that report. I asked our city manager about them. Uh, one of them said that uh, DNA costs for the Vancouver Police Department were something that we were funding in this. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very careful about what I speak about on that budget and have recused myself from uh, matters of the collective agreement in the past, but uh, I'm not quite sure how uh, mitigating the financial crisis from COVID has uh, required us to cherry pick out DNA and put that in a report. Uh, Would we not be funding that? Are we funding that more? I asked those questions. Uh, Vancouver Police uh, was not uh, at the meeting to answer those questions. But again, just trying to make sense of why all of these uh, small pieces were put together in this report uh, that doesn't really capture our overall budget at the City of Vancouver. Right. A lot of focus, though, seems to be on the number of communications staff that the City of Vancouver employs. Uh, do you think those need to be bolstered? Like, does there need to be more communication staff or do you think, no, that's enough? Well, I I think that uh, considering the cuts that we've had to make to other departments, uh, we have more than enough. That being said, I think that we also have to look at, at that report in terms of if we're going to be talking about what's important here or not. I have to say it's a position that hasn't been hired for, and we can say the money's earmarked for it. Could that money better be used on something else? Um, I I would argue yes, it could. I'd, I'd hope that we would use that money on something else. And, uh, for instance, as I just mentioned, DNA, uh, DNA costing, I suppose costing for the city of Vancouver uh, to provide that to the Vancouver Police Board and their operating budget, that's something I find essential. I don't know how we can go back in time on DNA testing. So when you say so DNA I'm testing... it makes sense as to why these pieces were all included in this document we received, Simi. When you say DNA testing, do you mean like they're using it in, in their investigations? This is DNA testing for all of 
all of the Vancouver Police Department, I would say in the report, I would favor uh, if, if we were looking at making cuts, as we've seen on the floor of council, and you've seen this before, um, I was quite concerned that some essential uh, services, and I think that that is essential. I, I, I can't speak for the Vancouver police, nor would I speak for the Vancouver police, but I think that DNA testing is uh, critical uh, to them being able to move forward with uh, some of their, their most serious investigations, and that is included in the report. I'm not sure why. I've asked our city manager, uh, but I, I didn't receive the information I needed from asking my question, so I may follow up on that with him. All right. Well, we'd be curious to hear about that as well. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Thanks so much. That is Melissa DiGenova, Vancouver City Councillor, uh, talking about a number of issues that have come up at Vancouver Council this week. The real focus, I think, of a lot of the discussion has been on the fact that, yes, they did cut some money out of a sanitation budget in order to provide some money and hire a new social media staffer. That, of course, in this time has raised a lot of questions from people. And so yesterday at his press conference, he was asked about this by several reporters, not just from Global News, but others as well. Uh, And things got a little bit testy. Have a listen. Mr. Mayor, just a question about optics. Are you not worried about... Well, are you not worried about the optics of hiring a social media person when you're laying off staff? Good for our next question, please. You're not going to answer that question. Are you no, worried hi. about There's that? There's many people with questions. You've had more than your share. You're not and gonna we're going to move on okay. to the next one. Is it in the, the best interest of the city to be hiring a social media manager, given yeah. how many people have been laid off? The person hasn't been hired. You're talking about a, a potential hiring of $95,000 out of a budget of $1.6 billion. Yeah, not really seeing the point there, is he? It's the idea that one of the biggest issues, and listen, I could open up the phones on this and it would be jam-packed in about two minutes if I asked people if you think the city of Vancouver has a sanitation problem. And people would say overwhelmingly, yes, they want more garbage pickup, they want more attention paid to litter, they want all of that kind of stuff. And so just the idea that you are cutting the sanitation budget, which is a very visual representation to people of what their municipal government does, and using it to supplement the communications department, which most people feel is already large enough, well, that is what has gotten people upset. Not this theoretical, oh, we haven't hired this person yet, so I don't know why everybody is getting upset about this. Now, also, we spoke with former city councillor George Affleck about this uh, earlier this week, as a matter of fact, and he had a pretty interesting perspective. Have a listen. There's roles and responsibilities at each level of government, and I feel like in the, in, in the case of this pandemic, Health and employment uh, have been a priority for the federal and provincial governments. Um, city governments, on the other hand, really, they need to take a step back and just kind of, you know, look at how do we inspire our residents? How do we keep them calm? What can we do to alleviate some of the stress that we're all feeling with all of this stuff going on? And it felt and it certainly proved that the, the mayor was not in touch with that. And he was uh, making announcements that were just making us all panic even more. And I thought that was so unfair of him. Uh, to do that to us in that period of time when we were all so stressed out about so many things. Now that we're seeing some kind of light at the end of the tunnel, 
you can get serious with those issues. But at that time, I think we were looking for inspiration from our local leaders, and we didn't get that in Vancouver at all. Yeah, I think that's very, very true. Instead, what we heard was a city government that sounded quite panicked over the finances and over needing help from the government or federal government or the provincial government, or they were going to go bankrupt, and there was all this concern, and they ramped up all that fear, and now it turns out we're hearing that, oh, the financial hit is not going to be as bad as that, and they will manage with some difficulty in making, you know, making a few things work, but they will manage to balance that budget this year. So, yeah, there are people who are, I think rightfully so, quite frustrated with how the city of Vancouver has managed this whole thing. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, businesses have a lot going on right now. They're just trying to stay in business. That is priority number one. Getting some more employees back to work, also a huge priority. And now on top of all that, they're going to have to deal with this. The minimum wage is going up on Monday by 75 cents, actually, to $14.60 an hour. So that is just one more thing that businesses are going to have to take into account when they are reopening, meaning maybe not all employees will be coming back to work on this. Now, Jock Finlayson is the Executive Vice President and Chief Policy Officer with the BC Business Council and joins us now to talk more about this. Good morning, Jock. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. So what are you hearing from businesses on this? Well, as you pointed out in your uh, introductory remarks, this is a a sort of turbulent and unprecedented time for a lot of companies in the province, and uh, uh, the biggest concern we've got uh, relates to the 400,000 jobs that have disappeared since February. We expect another 30 or 40,000 to be gone in May, so we're going to be down you know, almost a half a million jobs in a fairly short period of time. I think the real priority is to get as many of those people reemployed as possible, uh, hopefully in most cases before the end of the year. So anything that will slow down that healing of the of the labor market uh, gives us some pause. And, and it's in that context that we have some reservations about the timing of this minimum wage increase. Yeah, do you think this will slow down that healing, as you put it? Well, I, I, I wouldn't want to put too much, uh, I wouldn't want to load too much of the explanation up on the minimum wage. I mean, the big problem for companies is that a lot of our businesses have been closed down. Uh, others have been operating on a very sort of skeletal capacity. We also have a global recession that's underway. The Canada-U.S. border is closed. I mean, the, the problems are, are legion. Uh, but, you know, government should be looking to facilitate uh, it seems to me a rebound in uh, in jobs uh, and employment growth and a general recovery in the private sector, which is where all the carnage is occurring. And you know the minimum wage increase was already scheduled some time ago. We supported it, uh, the NDP government policy to move to fifteen dollars an hour. We thought it was actually fairly well thought out, but it's just turned out that uh, right. the timing for this has uh, you know is, is 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 a bit problematic. Right, you talked about you know things to do to get things going again. What is the best way to do that? What would you like to see happen? Well, the government's reopening plan I think is actually quite well founded. Uh, we don't want to see the virus come roaring back, so we are beginning to reopen the economy. Um, I think government should be you know trying to minimize the number of businesses that disappear because the more companies go out of business and this morning the CEO of the Tourism Industry Association was quoted as saying 40% of hotels and motels and up to half of restaurants in BC may actually be out of business by the end of the summer. If that's true, and I don't know if it is, we're talking you know, well over 100,000 jobs right there that potentially could be gone. In other words, they're not coming back as the economy reopens. So government, I think, needs to be all hands on deck to do everything possible to prevent 
um, sort of mass carnage among our yeah. companies because those jobs won't come back if the businesses have shut their doors. And how can we possibly do that? How can we, as how can the government help those businesses if there are no tourists? If they're simply, and that's well, not just us; that's everywhere. Yeah, right? well, in that that sector, it's it, it really is a devastating story. Generally, government can't you know snap its fingers and 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 and, and recreate a healthy business climate overnight. That's for sure. But I would be minimizing the things we called for a moratorium across government government, including at the municipal level, on all new taxes, fees, regulatory measures that would add costs. Governments are doing uh, things to try and help the economy recover. We've got a number of, a lot of money being thrown at it by the federal government, some by the province. Um, so I, I, we're, we're saying to the ministers around the cabinet table, look, you need to basically uh, approach this as kind of a wartime economy scenario. We need to be all hands on deck trying to minimize the number of businesses that we lose, and we are going to lose some for sure, Um, getting people back to work and restoring some semblance of stability to the private sector economy. And that's our plea with government. And I think they're struggling to get there, but it's very challenging. Right. I think the first couple of months, Jacques, were all about getting some money into people's hands, right? So they could pay their bills and, and make it through the couple of months. What do you think the focus is now? Well, I think supporting individuals and households and displaced workers was the right thing to do. Uh, now, uh, I, 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 again, I would tur- turn attention to, you know, if I was in government, I'd be asking, what could we be doing, say, in the province of B.C., um, that would reduce the number of companies that are going to basically shut their doors? And I think it really is trying to support cash flows. Uh, some some sectors are going to shrink, for sure, uh, tourism being one. But across the broad BC economy, we want to, you know, support cash flows, allow companies to survive through the summer so they can bring people back on staff. And that really requires, you know, maybe bridging loans. We've got the commercial rent initiative that the federal government announced a few weeks ago, although it's been very slow to roll out. Uh, and not putting more costs on the shoulders of business in the meantime, which is really the biggest thing I guess the government can really do. Right. So we are going to be talking actually with Harry Baines, the Labour Minister, a little bit later on the show. Jock, what would be your message directly to him on this point? Yeah, I guess a couple of things, and I, you know, we know the minister well. Uh, one would be what you know, how worried is he? Because uh, he's the minister of labor, he wants people to be working. How worried is he that we're going to see a ratcheting up in kind of long-term unemployment as companies disappear? Uh, I mean, have he and his cabinet colleagues talked about that? Uh, and secondly, on this minimum wage increase, why not? You know, the government froze and deferred taxes back in March and April. The BC government did. Uh, why did they not defer the move on this minimum wage, say, for three or six months just to kind of stabilize the labor market? That's two questions I would put to the minister when he's on your program. Well, we will see what we can find out about that. Jock, thanks for your time. All right, thank you. That is Jock Finlayson, Executive Vice President and Chief Policy Officer at the BC Business Council. Yeah, there are businesses that are concerned about the fact that the government is going ahead with this minimum wage increase. It goes up by 75 cents on Monday to $14.60 an hour. So one more item that businesses are going to have to kind of factor into their reopening. And we know that I think in particular, it'll be challenging for the hardest hit areas like restaurants and tourism. And for restaurants, yeah, this is going to be another cost. They're already only able to operate with kind of 50% of the people inside. Revenue is way down. How are they going to deal with this? Listen, if you're a business owner out there, you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. Let us know how you feel about this or how you're going to be taking that increase into account. Does it mean you don't call back as many workers? Does it mean you scale things down? Does it mean that you shut things down? This is Mornings with Simi. 
government froze and deferred taxes back in March and April, the B.C. government did, uh, why did they not defer the move on this minimum wage, say, for three or six months just to kind of stabilize the labor market? All right. So that's Jock Finlayson with the B.C. Business Council. He spoke to us about half an hour or so ago. Uh, and B.C. Labor Minister Harry Baines is joining us now to talk about questions like that, all the considerations that went into the decision to go ahead with the minimum wage increase. It is scheduled to go up on Monday by 75 cents to $14.60 an hour. And of course, for businesses, well, they're already dealing with a lot. So why do this now? Minister Baines joins us. Thank you very much for being here. Simi, thank you for having me. So why do this now? Well, Simi, I think both businesses and workers and people in in general are going through some difficult times right now, and we all know that. And I want to thank all of them participating and trying to uh, help each other to um, uh, go through this COVID-19 period that we're going through. But look, we put together supports for businesses because we understand that they're going through difficult times and that there are many support systems in place for them. But now, as much as ever, I think BC's lowest paid workers also need support. Now, Simi, these are the people and the workers that are the ones on the front lines right now. They work as uh, food services staff, grocery store workers, retail workers. They deserve to make a fair wage. And we must support both workers and businesses, as I said, and this is one way of helping the lowest paid workers uh, in, in, in this province. What, was there a consideration, though, to put this off because you did freeze and defer taxes back in March? Was there the thought that, OK, maybe we can defer this for a couple of months as well? Well, look, I don't think it's fair to ask the lowest paid workers, uh, many of whom, like I said, are providing the essential services that we depend on for the last few months. Uh, for them to wait six months or even longer because the times are still uncertain. These are the people, Simi, uh, they, you know, any, any increase they receive in their, in their minimum wage, these are the people, almost all of their money will be invested in their, in their businesses, in their own community, in their, in their businesses, in, in their neighborhood. So businesses will benefit from this so much as the workers will uh, in order to make ends meet. Now, what about long-term employment, though? Because this this may cause businesses to rethink just how many employees they actually have. So are there concerns? Have there been discussions about the impact of long-term unemployment? Well, look, we put the Fair Wages Commission um, together about two years ago. They consulted widely with economists. They, they talked to businesses, workers, small businesses, uh, experts. And they came back with a report. And they found out that what businesses need is a certainty, that the gradual, predictable wages is the way to go. That's why they recommended four stages increase to the minimum wage, uh, going up to $15.20 in 2021. And we're following that path. And I think it's not fair for the lowest paid workers, uh, who, by the way, um, you know, 93% of them working in the service producing sector, as I mentioned, some of them. 60% of those are, they identify themselves as females. And 41% of them work full-time. Simi, I don't think in, in I, don't, I know we, underst- we understand we're going through some tough times, mm-hmm. but we shouldn't force people to live in poverty when they're working full-time. Is this something, though, that is on your radar, that if six months from now we realize, okay, there's a problem here, not enough people are going back to work, is this one of the levers, perhaps, that you could rethink? Of course, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, day to day, week to week and month to month situation as the economy evolves. 
I think our, our approach will evolve. We have put together, uh, as you know, a premier announced $5 billion uh, stimulus package. And uh, in addition, $1.5 billion is there for, for economic recovery. And we have, uh, Premier have put together economic recovery task force. These discussions take place there. That $1.5 billion is available to help businesses to get back on their feet and, and get their businesses started so that the employee can go back to work. Of course, uh, we don't know. No one can predict right now what the economy will look like, whether this pandemic is, uh, is going to be overcome. Uh, and, uh, and I think, uh, you know, you review as, as, we, as, as the economy evolves and, and as we look at the situation. Will there be specific supports for certain industries, for instance, like getting the forestry industry back on track or getting the tourism industry back on track? Well, that's, those are the discussions that are taking place uh, at the Economic Recovery Task Force uh, with the Premier. And like I said, $1.5 billion is available and set aside to help businesses. And I think there's extra support for uh, uh, accommodation and, and retail sector, the tourism sector. I think those are the, those are the hardest hit, and I think uh, those discussions are going on. We are really live to the situation in those sectors uh, because they are hurting. Almost uh, over 90% of them are shut down. I think we need to work together uh, and we need to give them support as much as they need. Uh, and uh, I think uh, those discussions are going on at that table. So for people to know then, for businesses to know, this minimum wage increase is going ahead. So there's nothing about the minimum wage increases that are changing. No, minimum wage will go ahead as scheduled on June 1st. It will go up to $14.60. And uh, I think uh, the, we're working with the businesses, uh, as um, uh, Jack Finlayson mentioned, and there are many uh, programs in, in, in place to support the, the businesses, like deferral and reduction of taxes, uh, including carbon tax, employers' health tax, commercial property tax. And, and with, between uh, provincial and federal government, uh, there are a number of uh, other programs as well, just like the monthly rent and wage subsidies. Deferral of bill payments, as I said, waive the payment penalty for utilities. We made changes to the Employment Standard Act to to give um, support to the to the to the employers so that they could extend the minimum, uh, sorry, the the temporary uh, layoff provisions uh, to work with the with employees so that they have those workers available to them when they are ready to go back to work. So we're working very closely with those businesses and very live to the to, to the challenges that they are facing. But at the same time, we shouldn't be asking our lowest paid workers to wait six months or longer uh, when they need that support now. Minister Baines, thank you for your time. Simi, thank you for having me. That is Harry Baines, BC Labour Minister, talking about the increase in the minimum wage coming on Monday. And I'm sure business owners out there have some thoughts on that. You can send them to me, Simi, at cknw.com. Michael Campbell's up next. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, earlier on the show, we were talking about the city of Vancouver kind of potentially rethinking its housing strategy. One of the pillars of that housing strategy is that, uh, that so many people are going to be arriving in our country and in our region over the next five to 10 years that we need to build housing in order to make sure they're accommodated. But a new report out today from the Royal Bank of Canada says Canada will not necessarily meet immigration targets this year anyway, as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's talk more about this now. RBC's senior economist, Andrew Agapotswitz, joins us now to talk more about it. Andrew, thank you very much for being here. Uh, thanks for having me. So what is it that you looked at here? You're talking about just this year? Yeah, we're just, we decided with the, uh, 
the uh, new uh, uh, travel restrictions to look at what this effect will have on immigration. Uh, Canada started the year off in January, February on track for one of uh, record-breaking years for a number of new permanent residents and international students. However, uh, in the middle of March, we had these travel restrictions come on and it really put a damper on uh, the flow of new immigrants into Canada. And so we rely on, are these the immigrants that we rely on to take a lot of these jobs that seem to be open right now? Yeah, so I think the, in the, if we think in the long run, uh, Canada's labour force growth is going to be driven almost entirely by new immigrants. Uh, Canada's fairly older population, like all developed uh, economies, and we're seeing this uh, tremendous shift of baby boomers entering retirement over the next 10 years. That's a process that's already started. And so uh, Canada, its response to this has been to increase uh, immigration targets to make sure that our population grows. And one of the things um, about immigrants is that they tend to be younger than the population and they tend to enter the labor force quite quickly. And so in order to take care of a lot of the baby boomers uh, going forward, especially as they get into older ages, uh, Canada will rely on this labor force growth to kind of fund that you know, fiscal um, crunch that we're looking at in the next 10 years. Okay, so do we expect those numbers to eventually improve, though? Yeah, so I think uh, the key here is that these measures are temporary, but uh, obviously in a COVID world, there's going to be a lot of thinking about international travel. Uh, there's no uh, uh, vaccine or really effective treatments for COVID, so obviously this is going to Uh, For the next few months, at least, until we figure things out, uh, there's going to be some uncertainty here. Our point here was that the summer months, for sure, are a huge time for people to uh, come to Canada. And this next few months, we're definitely going to see a a sharp reduction. And that's going to be quite a large uh, number of people, about 170,000 people maybe over until August. Um, But then also we had to look at... uh, things in the short run, like uh, temporary foreign workers working in our agriculture sector. BC is one province in which uh, relies heavily on temporary foreign workers to um, help with the agriculture industry. And then, of course, international students in the fall. So, like, obviously, uh, uh, Vancouver has a number of uh, large universities that have high numbers of um, international students. And uh, increasingly, Canadian universities have been relying on international students to fund uh, to fund uh, part of the, uh, the the institutions. And so that uncertainty going forward of what's going to happen in the fall is something we want to look at as well. Right. I know that we often say that, you know, we bring in immigrant workers because they take the jobs that many people who've already been living here don't want to take, right? So that's kind of what we see right now. Are we going to have to rethink that, though? I don't, I don't think so. I think uh, we generally have a strategy in Canada to... Um, uh, welcome people who are high uh, high skill. So uh, immigrants tend to be much more educated than the, the general population, even. And so I think I think the key is thinking long term. We want to have a strategy that promotes labor force growth. That's going to provide kind of the large amount of working people that can help fund um, the generous social programs that we offer to seniors and make sure that that can continue as our population ages. Right. All right, Andrew. Thank you very much for your time on this today. Oh, no problem. Thank you very much.
That is Andrew Agopsowitz, the BC, RBC senior economist, talking about a new survey that they have out today, a new report that shows Canada is not going to meet its immigration targets this year as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. That, of course, does mean that there is a shortfall out there in jobs. There's a lot of industries looking for jobs, especially in food processing, uh, in the agriculture sector. We know the provincial government has made a big push on that front. Uh, so who is going to fill those jobs? Uh, you know, are people here going to have to go, you know what, I'll, tr- I'll give that a try. There's a lot of postings out there. I was just taking a look at them as well in the break.